today's episode, the individuals who brought artificial intelligence to Google, Facebook, and other companies. Hello, and welcome to Technology in Space, where we talk about the science, technology, history, and business of space exploration and commercialization. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Cade Metz, author of Genius Makers, The Mavericks Who Brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the World, published March 16, 2021 by Dutton. Thank you for speaking with me. Good to be here. So first, um, how did you get into studying this subject and, and writing a book on it? Well, it's been my beat as a journalist for years, first at Wired Magazine and then at the New York Times, where I am now. There's been significant change in this area, uh, starting about 2010, 2012, and continuing up to the present. And as I covered this, uh, I felt it deserved a book. Uh, it deserved a book that showed what has happened over the past decade, what this means, how we got here, and basically where we're going. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, tell me about how you uh, break down the book. I noticed it has four major sections. Can you talk about, about that? Well, maybe what we should talk about is that there's there's basically been one technological idea that mm-hmm. has started to work. Mm-hmm. And it's, an, it's called a neural network. And this idea dates all the way back to the 1950s. And over the decades, most people, even in the AI field, did not think this, this idea would ever work. And then in a, around 2010, it finally came to the fore and started to work with speech recognition. Uh, so the ability to understand the words that we say, and then with image recognition, so the ability for a machine to see objects and images. This is what drives facial recognition today. It's what drives Siri. That's why you can speak commands into your cell phone and it can understand what you're saying. It's starting to drive chatbots, mm-hmm. so systems that can start to carry on a conversation, which has long been a goal in this area. This same idea plays into self-driving cars. It's why self-driving cars can kind of see the world around them, see pedestrians on the side of the road or street signs. Mm-hmm. Other types of robotics rely on this idea. So basically what we have is this single technological idea, which is now spreading through so many of the machines that we use. Mm-hmm. What was the um, the breakthrough that occurred that, that, that started this, that triggered all this? Well, the central character in the book, and we can eventually get to the structure of the book, but the central character in the book that we begin with mm-hmm. is a guy named Jeff Hinton, who was born in London, it's kind of post-war England, mm-hmm. eventually made his way to the United States. But around 2010, he and a small group of students got this idea working with speech recognition. And that was an important moment. But there were a lot of people that were still skeptical uh, of the idea and questioned whether or not it would work in other areas. Mm-hmm. Then came the big moment in 2012 when when he and a couple of other students really got this working with image recognition. So they built this system that could recognize objects and digital images. So recognize flowers or cars or or faces uh, in digital images. And they and they built a system around a neural network 
that was able to do this at a level that no other system uh, could could do to date. Mm-hmm. And that is a moment where the biggest companies on earth, there's some of the biggest companies on earth, the Google, including Google and Microsoft, Baidu in China, realized that this was happening and really jumped mm-hmm. on this idea. And so the book begins at that moment. Uh, Jeff Hinton and his two students have built this system and he realizes the importance of it. And he actually auctions his services off to the mm-hmm. highest bidder. There's this auction uh, in Lake Tahoe, where he is, uh, where four companies are bidding for this services, realizing how important this idea is. Mm-hmm. Was that, was his uh, solution or this development, was it mostly hardware focused software or what's the mix there? It's software. So it's, I think it's worth explaining what a neural network is and why mm-hmm. it's so important. Mm-hmm. A neural network is basically mathematics. It's a, it's a mathematical concept. Mm-hmm. And this piece of math can learn particular skills by analyzing data. So the, the example I always give is if you have thousands of photos of a cat and you feed those into a neural network, it can analyze those photos and it can look for the patterns that define what a cat looks like mm-hmm. in that way. It can learn to recognize a cat. It's the same thing with spoken words. This is how Siri works. Okay? Mm-hmm. You have a neural network and you feed it thousands of hours of spoken words and it can analyze those spoken words and look for the patterns um, that, that identify them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that it's that same basic concept that is applied to all those other technological services I talked about. And the reason it's so important is that the machine is literally learning the task on its own, right? Mm-hmm. You don't need to put hundreds of engineers into a room and have them define what a cat looks like. That's too difficult. Mm-hmm. It takes too long for engineers to define that line by line of code, rule by rule. The reason this idea is so powerful is that it can learn that skill on its own. Mm-hmm. And that means the technology can progress at a much faster rate than it has in the past. And that's what we've seen over the past decade. How much of it was dependent on um, the increase in computing power versus just an innovative coding approach or, or structured approach? Yeah, see, this this idea of a neural network, it dates all the way back to the 50s, and and there was a missing mathematical piece Mm -hmm. that was added in the 80s. But since the 80s, we basically had the concept. Mm -hmm. What was needed was two things, the computing power, which you alluded to, but we also needed the data. Mm -hmm. And the Internet basically gave us the data. We needed all those images of cats, right, and whatever else. Mm -hmm. Uh, We needed the sounds and the text, you know, today we have these giant neural networks that learn from so much text on the internet. And we can talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are really the two things that were needed. And even people like Jeff Hinton and other scientists, and there were, weren't that many of them, mm-hmm. but other scientists who kind of nurtured this idea over the decades, mm-hmm. they didn't realize how much data would be needed. Mm-hmm. They didn't realize how much computing power would be needed to analyze all that data. Um, but eventually we got to the point where those two things were in place and that's when the idea started to work. 
So, um, as far as I know that this process requires sort of, um, uh, basically a, pro a, a process where you start out by saying you input data and you compare it and say, and look at the output data and determine the correct answer was achieved or not. I, you know, more or less, is that sort of how they started developing it? Like just bit by bit. And then it was able, the system was able to do more on its own. Well, I mean, at a basic level, essentially you get those thousands of cat photos and you do have to label them. You need a, someone to say, this is a cat. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, but that's, you know, that's a, that's a simple thing to do, right? Basically, the way it works is someone will draw a box around the cat. They call it a bounding box. And you just say to the system, mm -hmm. this is a cat. And then you give it enough examples of that. They call them labeled images. So if you have, you know, thousands of cat photos and you just say, these are cats, the system can learn to recognize a cat. Mm -hmm. um, it's, 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 it's just math that identifies the patterns in that. If you give it enough photos, hmm. um, you know, with enough variation, right? You know, cats, especially digital photos, right? They can vary. There are different kinds of cats. But if you give the system enough examples, it can learn to, to, to deal with that variation. Hmm. And it learns, uh, you know, the patterns that identify a cat. That's fundamentally how it works. And so now... Um Let's talk about the, the bidding and the, and the companies that wanted to get involved in this. Was it, uh, was there, uh, any attempt to develop their own processes in competition and just do it that way? Or was it just, we'll grab this guy and his ideas and, and run with it? Well, what's interesting is that this was an idea that was on the fringes of even academia for so long. Hmm. What that meant was there weren't that many people that that knew the concept. Hmm. And so the talent became valuable, right? We had the processing power, we had the data, then you need people to make it work. And this auction was kind of ground zero for that, where the price of the talent was set. Uh, Jeff and, and just two students, and these were students who had no, ex no degree yet, no PhD, right? No experience in industry. Jeff Hinton himself had no experience in industry, really. And they auctioned their services off, and you see this in the opening of the book, for millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And that set the price for the talent. They, were big, they quickly escalated this arms race almost for the, for the talent. Mm -hmm. And so the few people who understood this concept ended up joining these very large companies, often for millions of dollars in salary and stock options and, and bonuses. Mm -hmm. um, and you saw that play out over years. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Cade Metz, author of Genius Makers. You can find more information about his work on Twitter at Cade Metz. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. If you're interested in interviews with writers such as Andy Weir, and Martha Wells, please check out my website, fullcontactnerd.com. If you're interested in interviews about military history, covering everything from ancient war to World War II and to modern war, please check out my website, warscholar.org. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. Moving an academic into the corporate world would seem like not always the easiest task, so I'm curious how 
how that worked out. It's also interesting that this technology was so powerful and so important that in some ways these academics ended up changing the way the companies operated. Hmm. It's fascinating if you take Google, for example, which is the company that Jeff Hinton joined, mm -hmm. with a lot of their latest technology, they were very concerned about keeping it to themselves, not publishing their latest research, which is how you'd expect a, a large public company to behave. These academics came in and they had always published. They had always shared their latest advances with the larger world. And in a way, they pushed the companies in that direction. And the companies started publishing in this area. And they still do. And it has big ramifications. It means that the technology can improve at a faster rate. If, if you're openly publishing, if everyone's openly publishing, mm -hmm. and everyone can build on everyone else's advances, and technology can continue to snowball. And that's basically what's happening. Mm -hmm. But it also means that everyone has mm -hmm. access to the latest technology. Mm -hmm. So if you're the U.S., uh, right, who, who might, you know, if you're government, government officials in the U.S., and you might think that only these American companies have access to the technology. That's not the case. Mm -hmm. Our rivals in China, for instance, or in Russia also have access to this because it's openly published. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to competing with foreign powers, the dynamic is different than you might, might expect. Mm -hmm. It's interesting thinking about um, intellectual property law. You know, normally a company develops something, keeps it secret and, and benefits or can, holds the rights to it and benefits for what, a decade or so. Um, but in this case, it seems like the focus is innovate faster than anyone else um, and make money that way. Yes. And then there's there's an added piece. And that's that, as we talked about, you need data, you need processing power. Well, those two are two things that these giant internet companies have in abundance, mm. right? So they kind of have an advantage here. Mm. Um, but that's that's the currency, right? It's the processing power, the data, and the talent. And because these companies have so much money, they've been able to acquire the talent um, to the point where a lot of people are worried about the imbalance between industry and academia now that mm. everything's happening inside these public companies mm -hmm. and not in government labs, for instance, and not in academic labs. Mm -hmm. So, and, and the book focuses, does it mainly focus on Google and Facebook? Well, no, it, it's really spans the globe, you know, from the beginning with that auction, Google was in the mix. Microsoft was in the mix. So was Baidu, which is one of the largest internet companies in China. China has been a player here from the beginning. Mm -hmm. What the book does, it follows this group of people really centered around Jeff Hinton, mm -hmm. who nurtured this idea for decades. It, it goes back to the 50s even, shows the path of this idea uh, through the 50s on into the 80s and forward. And it shows, you know, through this small group of people, how it was developed. And then it follows these same people as they move into these very large companies, mm -hmm. which also include Facebook, by the way, um, include uh, a new lab built in, in London called DeepMind, which was also mm -hmm. one of the bidders for Jeff's company. And they have become a, a very important AI lab over the past decade. They were also acquired by Google. Mm -hmm. And they now have a rival, which was started by Elon Musk, 
the American entrepreneur called OpenAI. And they are mm. two labs that are kind of at the forefront of this. And so the story kind of weaves between all these characters and these these various labs in various parts of the world. Do the um, do the people working at these labs, is there a lot of movement through them or are they pretty much um, silos of information in, in general? No, they, you see a lot of movement between companies. That's part of the drama in the book is that, you know, one researcher will be acquired, so to speak, by one company, but then move to another. And you do have this this dynamic where there's open publishing, so the ideas are moving back and forth. Mm-hmm. And then in the second half of the book, the real the real tension is that the aims of these companies clash in many ways with the aims of these individuals. Right? These are mm-hmm. idealistic academic researchers who saw their technology being used in particular ways. They were opposed, many of them, for instance, to their technology being used for autonomous weapons mm-hmm. or being used by the military in other ways. And then suddenly some of the companies they're working for start working with the military. Mm-hmm. And that's just one clash, but that's really where the drama is in the second half of the book is that this idea starts to work. These people who drove the idea for so many years saw it being used in particular ways. And that wasn't necessarily the way it played out. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, a lot of new situations popped up that they didn't anticipate. Mm -hmm. Um, These systems can be biased because they Mm -hmm. train on data and data is biased, right? Mm -hmm. Anyone who's used the internet knows that we, there's, there's bias on the internet. There's hate speech on the internet. That all gets, gets, you know, pushed into these systems. It's fundamentally the way they train. Mm-hmm. If they train on biased data, they are going to be biased themselves. And that's a problem that a lot of these researchers didn't necessarily anticipate. Mm-hmm. These are all uh, big, big issues that we're still dealing with as a society. These big companies aren't sure how to deal with this. Mm-hmm. How far should we go when it comes to military use? How do we deal with this bias problem? There's not a good solution uh, at this point. There are other issues that we can talk about. At this point, um, is the development of AI, is it, is the development, uh, incre- incremental changes that are, they're making it, fine tuning it, or are there still big, big discoveries to be made? I, I guess it's hard to anticipate that, but. Well, there actually, you know, it's a good question because there are these areas where this same idea continues to gain steam, right? We talked about it working with speech recognition. Then it works with image recognition. Mm -hmm. Well, once it works with image recognition, that plays into robotics. And that's where we're seeing a lot of progress, not only with self-driving cars, but robots that that are used in warehouses or in manufacturing plants. Basically what you can do is you you can capture data showing robots working in certain ways, right? Say guided by, you know, a human and, you can use that data to train the system to, to work automatically. Mm-hmm. Or, and th- this is something you kind of alluded to, right? The way these systems work at the basic level is you you kind of learn from the images and you can learn particular skills. Once the systems learn that skill, you can have them kind of learn through trial and error, right? Once they can do a little bit, 
you can you can have them learn through extreme trial and error. It's called reinforcement learning. Okay. And a good example of this shows shows up in the book where Google builds this lab. They call it the arm farm. It was basically this room of robotic arms. Okay. And they wanted the robots to learn how to pick up random items. It's a very hard thing for robots to do. You have like a bin of random stuff, like you would have in an Amazon warehouse, right? You have all these goods that come into the warehouse and they've got to be sorted um, and then sent along their way to the, you know, to the, to the proper trucks and to the proper people. Mm-hmm. Usually you need people in a warehouse to sort through all that stuff. Well, Google wanted to build a robot that could do that on its own. And they had it learned literally through trial and error. I mean, basically you just give it a, a, a bin full of stuff and it spends hours trying to pick up this stuff and failing. Mm-hmm. And over time it learns to do this. And that's a real area of progress here. And you don't nowadays necessarily have to rely on it doing that in the real world. You can kind of build a virtual representation of mm. that. And it can learn in the virtual world, um, you know, like pick, trying to pick up virtual items in that way, mm. in, in an extreme way. Like, you know, years and years of training time, you know, sort of crunched down in the digital world. And then once it trains in the, in, in the digital world, you can apply it in the physical world and it works. Mm-hmm. It's a remarkable thing. That type of robot has now been deployed in warehouses where it, it learns in the digital world. And then you can put it in this real warehouse, in this real facility uh, in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it can piece, you know, pick through those, those physical items in the physical world. Uh, that's another area. Is, is Amazon outsourcing this research or are they doing their own? A little bit of both. Um, you know, what they started doing was sort of running a contest that uh, various labs could participate in to try to solve this problem. It's a really big problem for companies like that. Mm-hmm. But now you have all these, all these um, startups that have sprung up to do this very thing. And it's mm-hmm. unclear how app Amazon is starting to tackle this. It's, it has certainly had conversations with a lot of these companies. It's also doing a lot of research on its own. Um, and, uh, and this is an area that we need to continue to watch. It's continuing to progress that a lot of companies, not just Amazon, are interested in. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about Google's um, sort of the timeline of its development. Um, you know, all, all the searches that people do on Google can be used to feed into their, their data set that they use for testing and such. They, they were a, a search engine before they got the, before they started this, right? Absolutely. And that, again, I alluded to that is that these are companies that have the data yeah. and that gives them an advantage. What you're seeing now, and this is another area where there's been an acceleration of progress, is neural networks uh, that can learn from text. So basically, you just take enormous amounts of text digital books, Wikipedia articles, all sorts of other content from the internet, uh, conversations, anything else. Mm -hmm. And this neural network will spend months analyzing all that text. And in doing that, it learns the vagaries of how we humans piece language together. Mm -hmm. And then that, that learning can be applied to all sorts of tasks, uh, whether it's a system that can carry on a conversation 
or the search engine like this type of neural network now helps drive the Google search engine, which means it can better understand what you're looking for when you key a query and then help uh, respond to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this kind of virtuous circle that goes on, right? You know, as you use the search engine, you're, you're, you're inputting more and more data and that data can be used to improve the search engine and, and so on and so forth. But this is, this is the big area. They call it natural language understanding. It's basically building these systems that can learn language in this way. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about all the services that Google offers, you know, like Google scholar and Google, you know, it has, you can do so many things on Google and I'm wondering did that all burst? Did you see a big growth in those services after they started this AI or was it something that was going on before and they saw the synergy? Well, I mean, not necessarily growth, but what you are seeing is the improvement of so many services. Mm-hmm. Like this idea, like I said, can improve the search engine. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see this now that the search engine can respond to queries in a much more nimble way than it did in the past. Mm-hmm. You can see it in, in the Google Photos app. You can now say, you know, type in, you know, show me all the photos in my library that have a tombstone in it. Mm-hmm. And through that that image recognition technology, it can instantly give you uh, photos that include a tombstone. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many other examples where this technology is kind of seeping into everything we use it's the way that facebook for instance can recognize faces in the photos you post to its social network Mm -hmm. that's a neural network we talked about siri it uses neural networks to recognize the voices you say so what you're seeing is just a gradual improvement of so many things that we use because of this system that can learn these skills Mm -hmm. why exactly do they apply the term neural network you know neural to this to all of this and that's what the book goes into is that the original aim was to build a system that behaved like the brain and in a loose sense this system does it's called a neural network because it's meant to mimic the web of neurons in the brain mm-hmm. and don't take that too literally mm-hmm. uh I, you know i want to make i want to make that point firmly but in a loose sense, it does behave like that. Like this mathematical system is organized as a series of virtual neurons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each neuron performs a small task, just like each neuron in your brain, you know, performs a small task. And that, and that, that task is useless on its own. But w- when used in concert with all the other neurons performing their tasks, mm-hmm. Right. It can achieve it can achieve an end goal. And that's the way these these systems work. They're they're kind of layers of virtual neurons that take in this data and they work in concert to analyze it. Mm -hmm. What uh, what what fields of study are most of these academics in? Are they mathematicians or computer science engineers or? Well, that's what's so interesting is there's this interesting overlap between computer scientists neuroscientists, you know, who study the, the brain, mm-hmm. psychologists, these are all fields that were, you know, coming up at the same time, right, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. And so Hinton, for instance, um, you know, came up through, through psychology, um, but then moved into AI, 
Um, there are others who were trained engineers which moved into this field. And you see this cross-pollination uh, between these fields. Mm-hmm. You know, some people see, you know, like neuroscience, like understanding the human brain as a way to inform AI. Mm-hmm. Others see AI, if we can build AI, then we can better understand how the brain works, right? Again, you know, the, they see it as kind of this virtuous cycle where one field is, is feeding the other. Mm-hmm. What I often say is you shouldn't you shouldn't take this too far. Like as you as you try to think about what's going on here, mm-hmm. we do not know how the brain works fundamentally. Mm-hmm. We still it's still a mystery. So building a system that behaves like the brain is is still an enormous task. And we can we can learn lessons from the brain, and we can mimic and mimic the brain and in in broad ways Mm -hmm. but we still don't know how the brain works and so building a system that can do anything that human brain can do that's quite a task where in the timeline of of what was going on did the huge concerns about surveillance and and military use of this technology what what years what year did that really jump up in people's well for some people it's it's always been there you know what part of the interesting Part of the, the, the thread of this story is that Jeff Hinton, in the 80s, just as he was kind of adding this missing mathematical piece to the neural network, um, he was at the time a professor at Carnegie Mellon in the United States. And he realized, even as this technology was progressing, that he needed to leave the country. He and his wife did not want to take money from Ronald Reagan's Defense Department. And they realized that was the only way to do this research in those days. You know, it was the Defense Department that was funding AI research in the U.S. And so he and his wife actually left the country because they didn't want to take money from the from the Department of Defense. The irony is that years later, once this idea really came to the fore in, in 2012 and the years that followed, Google, who Jeff Hinton went to work for, started working with the military, started working with the Defense Department, right? And it's one, it's one of those clashes of ideals that I, that I talked about. And that was really a key moment when Google started working with the DOD to bring this idea. Um, it was basically a way to identify objects in drone footage, so identify people and buildings and cars, right, which can be used for surveillance, can also be used for autonomous weapons. And there was a there was a moment at Google when many employees realized this was happening and they protested it. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, and and so that that notion that we might have a problem here uh, really, you know, really went mainstream. Mm-hmm. Right. This that was a that was a big story. In the years since uh, greater concern has risen around face face recognition in particular, mm-hmm. um, which is which is using the same technology and is now being deployed by police departments. It's also being deployed in China to identify an ethnic minority. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a real concern uh, for a lot of people that this system can be biased for one, but also can be used to target particular parts of of the population. And increasingly, uh, people have raised concerns in both areas. I'm speaking with Cade Metz, author of Genius Makers. You can find more information about his work on Twitter at Cade Metz. 
If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. If you're interested in interviews with writers such as Andy Weir and Martha Wells, please check out my website, fullcontactnerd.com. If you're interested in interviews about military history, covering everything from ancient war to World War II into modern war, please check out my website, warscholar.org. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. And, um, in the last few years, also camera technology, um, has, has gotten so good, you know, pictures, the, the amount of data that one picture has, has, has exploded. So did AI, did AI, um, efforts have to change to, to deal with this increased amount of data or did, did it just make what they've done, they did already that much more powerful? It made it more powerful. So when you have more cameras, they give you more detailed images. Uh, they're in more places around the globe. Um, that just is, is, is more information that you can feed into these systems and they can learn their skills in, in more precise ways. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, turn to um, how, you, how you did the research for this book. Um, obviously, you said you've been covering this for a while. I guess you did interviews and, and what else did you do? Yeah, I mean, um, I've been covering this for years and got to know a lot of these researchers and spent a lot of time with them, interviewed them over the years. And, you know, all that plays into the book, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of interviews. I guess at some point, at some point you're going, you're going to um, upset some people, I guess, with some of this, you know, as, as you gather information. Um, did you have, I'm curious how you dealt with that sort of issue. Well, you can't worry about that. Um, you know, you want to tell a real story and, and that means showing people's strengths, showing their flaws, uh, showing the mistakes companies might've made. Mm-hmm. You just have to tell the real story and not, and not worry, you know, who's going to like it and who's going to not. If the story is, is real, then it will work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really kind of the guiding light. Mm-hmm. And as far as, uh, was it mostly American uh, researchers that you interviewed or did you get other country perspectives as well? That's, that's one of the amazing things here is that those few people who believed in this idea over the decades, most of them did, did not practice in the U S like I said, Jeff Hinton left the country. He went to Canada, he went to the university of Toronto and that kind of be, became the center of gravity for this idea. Hmm. And Europe was, it was another kind of air, you know, uh, another center of gravity, but essentially when the idea started to work, almost none of the people working in that area were in the U S they were all mm-hmm. in other places. And it, it becomes a metaphor, a larger metaphor for, for the U S and, and the way it, it really relies on immigrant talent in general in the science and tech fields. It's a really important part of the way the U S operates. Mm-hmm. And, this was the case in the extreme with this, where most of the talent was not within the borders of the U.S. It was elsewhere. And these big U.S. companies had to go elsewhere um, to really bring this idea to the fore. Mm-hmm. And I've also heard doing some interviews with academics about aerospace and, and other technologies, they expressed that immigration issues and visa issues of the previous administration really stymied 
um, technological development in that area. Did, did you, have you noticed the same as far as AI and, and that sort of thing? Has it stymied it? Um, we haven't seen it really stymie it, but it's, it's a, it's a concern, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you want, you want the free, free flow of immigrants, um, in these fields. And, um, you know, in recent years, you know, there was sort of a chilling effect in that area and, and that has raised a lot of concerns, but it hasn't, it hasn't stopped the technology. We've seen it continue to progress, you know, because, uh, you know, a lot, the free flow did continue to happen, but it, it, it's a real concern for a lot of people and has been, you know, in recent years. And I guess I should have uh, clarified, I meant for, for the development of it in the U.S., you know, U.S. Um, endeavors. What uh, what did you come across? So you've been working on this for a while, but for this book, did you figure out something or come across something that most surprised you that you didn't expect? There, there are so many things. One of the things that is um, that is so fascinating is the way these systems, if you turn them upside down, so to speak, we've talked about them recognizing things, recognizing patterns in, in voices or text or images. Once they learn those patterns, if, if you flip them upside down, that means they can create sounds and images and text on their own. And that's what we're seeing as well. And that's another area of concern where these systems can, can create something that sounds like your voice or create uh, an image that, that looks like a person, create blog posts and tweets that look like the real thing. And the concern here is that this is a way of creating disinformation, right? Um, mm-hmm. Over the past four years, we've all seen kind of the effects of disinformation online and, and the problems that this can cause. That disinformation is mostly created by people. Uh, that means there's a limit to how much you can create. Mm-hmm. What if you have machines that can do that on a much larger scale? That's, a, that's another side effect here that the industry and society as a whole is really going to struggle with in the years to come because these systems are getting better and better and better at producing digital content that looks like the real thing. Mm-hmm. This makes me think of, um, I mean, I think I think about the Manhattan Project and the, the nuclear bomb. You know, at what point will AI become such a definer of who has power? You know, who has the ultimate power globally? That it seems like some of these you know, people resist working with the military, but at some point someone's going to say, do I, what country do I want to have the power? Absolutely. And that, that is already playing out. Uh, the, as I discussed earlier, you know, one of the central countries here is China, right? A chief rival of the United States. And there's a lot of concern in the U S that, uh, China in the long run can leap ahead here. You know, we talked about the importance of the talent. We talked about the importance of the data. Well, China has a bigger population. That means in the long run, it's going to produce more talented, meaning in numbers, uh, a larger number of, of talented AI researchers. It's going to produce more data, right? If you have a greater population using the internet, you're going to produce more of this digital data that you need to build these systems. And so this is already uh, a real concern. And Reese just recently led by Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, who's also a character in my book there, 
there have been new recommendations to the president and the Congress about how to deal with some of the gaps between the way the U.S. is, is operating the way, and the way China can potentially operate. Right? There is a lot of concern that so much of the town here in the U.S. is inside the big companies. It's not working with the government necessarily. Mm-hmm. When it comes to military applications or, and other applications uh, that are a concern, for the government. Uh, you know, in China, you have a close relationship between industry and government that you don't have in the U.S. So these are these are things that that people are already thinking about and already concerned about. Mm-hmm. So um, obviously the development of quantum computing is going to affect um, this field. Are there ways that that you that you see specific things that you can identify that that ill affect? That it'll affect quantum computing? That how quantum computing will affect um, the development of AI. Um, how quantum computing will affect... Um, I guess it, I'd imagine it would make it faster and better, but um, are there are there things that people maybe aren't thinking about that you came across? Well, I, I'm just... I'm, I'm thinking of the best way to do this. So just give me a second, because they're, they, they are related, but let's do it like this. Mm-hmm. Quantum computing is is another hugely important area. Mm-hmm. And we've had a lot of progress in that area just recently, mm-hmm. uh, which point to the realization of, of this idea, a quantum computer, which is a computer that would be exponentially more powerful than, than today's machines. But it's still not clear when that's going to happen. It's probably years in the future when we have a really practical quantum machine. Mm-hmm. Once we do have that, it could seriously advance the cause of AI, right? We've talked about the importance of processing power in this area and the ability to analyze data uh, and and the like. This can revamp um, the way we build AI uh, just because it can can allow us to train systems uh, in much, much faster ways and the technology can progress. It can, can... Uh, accelerate in ways that it couldn't in the past. But I do, again, want to make clear that we don't have quantum computers today. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an idea that's uh, another idea that has has long been around, that has long held promise, that some people are still skeptical of, that that may or may not come to fruition in in the years to come. Mm -hmm. Okay. Was there a particular um, issue or question in your research for this book that you really wanted to get an answer for and did not, or, or just took a lot of work to, to figure something out? Oh, it's constant work to, to figure everything out. Like you, we talked about that auction at the opening of the book where Jeff Hinton sells his services, basically to the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. And what was vitally important to that story was how much he eventually sold for. Right? That was a secret. <laughs> um, and even uh, the other players in the auction, those who lost, they didn't know what the figure was. And in a lot of ways, it was the most important fact of the book. And I was worried for quite a while whether or not I could get that number. I did get it. Hmm. Uh, it shows you know, how valuable that talent was. And, it, and like I said, it set the price for the talent for years to come. Mm-hmm. And But there are all sorts of moments in, in the book like that where you just keep talking to people you get a little, a little bit of information. You take that information to the next person who might be able to add to it. 
and and your research snowballs and eventually you get to those those little facts uh, that are essential to your narrative so and i don't want you to reveal any details i want the readers to read the book but um can you say whether he went to the highest bidder or were there other factors that influenced his final decision that's what's interesting is the the price climbed and climbed and climbed and some of the players dropped out. Um, it eventually got down to two. And um, while the price was still climbing, he stopped the auction hmm. and and chose one of the final two. It was Google. I think we've said that. But hmm. he chose Google because there were other things that were important to him. It wasn't just about the money. Hmm. And we talked about his ideals and and the ideals of being an academic and and the ways that I academics typically operate. Mm -hmm. It shows also uh, in a way how the industry would, would evolve in the years to come when it came to these ideas, you know, Jeff wanted something uh, more than, than just money. And, you know, in a way companies are about money. And, and again, it, it anticipates this clash that would come along uh, in later years between the ideals of the individuals uh, and the aims of the companies. And um, again, with this question, you don't have to reveal details, but just um, were there people who did things during the course of, of the passing years? Did anyone do anything that shocked you or surprised you? Any decisions they made? Uh, individuals or companies? E either, actually. Absolutely. Uh, there there are big things that surprised that surprised me and small. One of the things we're, we're going through now is two of the characters in my book who started to recognize the bias in these systems, Tim Neat Gebru and Meg Mitchell, who wound up at Google and kind of sounded the alarm about the bias problem. They are no longer at the company. Uh, Tim Neat said she was fired by Google in December and Meg Mitchell in trying to defend her um, uh, was fired by the company. And that was surprising uh, to a lot of people that these individuals who had really led the whole industry to recognize this problem were no longer at Google. And it, again, it's indicative of a clash between uh, companies, individuals, between the aims uh, of certain individuals, the aims of the companies and we saw that class for years, and you see the clash in my book, um, but now it has risen to a, a level that a lot of people didn't anticipate. Uh, it's a really important issue, and it's a thorny issue for, for the industry to deal with. The, the companies that you talk about in, in your book, Google and, and the others, did their, their highest level leadership, did that pretty much stay the same throughout, or has there been turn, much turnover? No, there has been some turnover. Um, you see characters in the book who, who have risen um, or, 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 or stepped aside. Um, you know, Google in particular has gone through changes uh, in CEO. The, the original founders have stepped aside. Uh, Eric Schmidt, who was the CEO for, for many years, stepped aside. But, you know, in other cases, you know, the, the leadership stays the same. Mark Zuckerberg is a character in, in the book at Facebook. You know, he's, always been in charge or remains remains in charge um, but it's it's important at, at Google because the the founders 
were so important to the company and they had their own ideals. And as they step aside, uh, a lot of people have wondered if those ideals uh, will remain, uh, whether, whether the company will go in new directions because it's under new leadership. And this has implications in this area. We talked about that lab deep mine, which is so important, right? They were purchased under the old regime and some people wonder if they will, you know, continue to get the latitude that they need um, under the new regime. I'm curious about Elon Musk's attempts or um, dabbling with this. How how strong are his efforts? Well, for a while there, they, they were they were really strong. We talked about DeepMind, uh, that important lab in London, which was bought by Google. They had a really ambitious aim. Their stated aim was to build what they call artificial general intelligence, a machine that can do anything the brain can do. Mm-hmm. Now, that's something that they don't necessarily know how to accomplish. Um, it's very far off, most people think. But that was their aim. Elon Musk was an investor in that company. Mm-hmm. And after they were acquired by Google, he decided to launch his own effort, almost as a rival to DeepMind, to do the same thing, to build something that could do anything the human brain can do. And that's a lab called OpenAI based in, in San Francisco. And he becomes, in creating that lab, uh, an important character in the book. And in part because he had huge ambitions there, but also because he was worried, like a lot of people, that this AGI idea would go wrong. Hmm. That in producing a system that would behave like, uh, that could do anything our our, our brain can do that it would end up kind of turning on on humankind. Hmm. Uh, and this became a real trope, you know, across the media and across the industry that we were we were going to destroy ourselves in this way. Um, in a lot of ways, he's he's speaking in, in hyperbole, right, as Elon Musk often does. But in, in other ways, it's worth being concerned about the dangers of technology and and the dangers of this kind of technology in particular. And although the kind of system that that we're talking about here, this, this AGI, is a long way off, we've seen with much simpler technologies, which we've discussed here over the past hour, we've seen how these technologies can go wrong and, and cause problems in very real ways. Certainly, as we continue to improve the technology, we need to think about where it might go wrong as well as where it can go right. Mm-hmm. Now, um, this question might might seem out of place for this subject, but, but since it is a story about human beings, was there anything you came across that had a strong emotional impact on you, either positively or negatively? Countless things. And ultimately, mm-hmm. I think that this is a book about people. Mm-hmm. Like any good story, it's about people and and their experiences. You see this in the story of Jeff Hinton, who struggled for years to bring this idea to the fore and, and struggled in ways that you might not expect. You learn in the first sentence of the book that he literally does not sit down. Hmm. When he was a teenager, he slipped a disc, lifting a space heater for his mother. And what that meant was, is that by his by his 50s, his disc would slip so often that he couldn't function. Hmm. 
uh, it really affected his work and his research. And he decided one day, and this shows you the way he thinks, he decided one day the only way to deal with it was to stop sitting down. Mm-hmm. And that means he cannot drive a car. He can't fly on a commercial airline because they make you sit during takeoff and landing. Mm-hmm. When he travels you know, in a car, he has to lie down in the back seat. When he travels longer distances, he's got to take a boat across the ocean or a plane across the continent. And you see this in the book as he's trying to get this idea to work and trying to bring this idea to places like Microsoft and Google, that he's got to travel these enormous distances by train. And then once he gets to, you know, Seattle from Toronto or Lake Tahoe from Toronto, then he's got to get into a taxi and lay down in the back seat. Mm. Um, it, It becomes a metaphor for his struggles to get this idea off the ground. And then at the same time, as he's developing this idea, he had two wives die of cancer. Mm. And and this is part of the book as well. They're, they're really emotional moments that, you know, that are very human. And you you may not expect that from a book about AI, but maybe you should. Like, like mm. you know, AI and technology in general is built by people. Uh, we forget that sometimes. And, um, we need to remember the people who are building it. We need to remember that kind of they are reflected very often in the technology uh, as well. And that's really what this story is. It's a story about people. Mm-hmm. What part of the process of writing this book was most enjoyable for you? Well, getting getting to know a lot of these people in, in every respect and, and seeing their strengths and seeing their flaws. And that's what I love to do is, um, you know, understanding what's going on and getting the details and then putting that in, into a story. Jeff Hinton, among other things, is an incredibly funny person. And I think that that's part of the book as well. It's, it, you know, ends up being a, a very funny book because he is so funny. He's got this sense of humor. That's always a couple steps ahead of you. You know, an example I always give is at one point I was writing a piece in the times that, that mentioned him and I, and I wrote him an email and I said, so do you want to be known as Jeff or Jeffrey? You know, his, his birth certificate reads Jeffrey. And he wrote back with a two-line email, and it said, I prefer Jeff, thanks, Jeffrey, which really sums up him and his, his sense of humor. Um, you know, it's this two-line email that's you know, packed with information, and if you're not paying attention – you won't even you won't even get how funny that is, and he talks in that way. I really loved interviewing him because almost every moment um, brought something like that and brought a new anecdote or a new joke or an unexpected way of looking at the world that just got layered into into the book and, and the larger narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ratings for the book on Amazon are. are- very good. So very, very strong um, support for that, for your book. Um, did you have any difficulties getting it finished or published? Or was it a smooth process? No, I did um, uh, agree to write it um, uh, with my publisher uh, beforehand. And, but you know, what's it, what was interesting is that, that it, it went in new directions after I, you know, after I had signed the contract, right? That the second half of the book, where these individuals in some ways 
clash with the companies. You know, that really hadn't happened yet. And that, so that really developed after um, I had agreed to write the book. You know, to answer the other part of your question, writing a book is extremely difficult, particularly when I was, you know, in the midst of my day job at the New York Times. And uh, mm-hmm. I was lucky that the book dovetailed with my beat at the time. But still, writing a book uh, is a difficult thing. What I kept telling myself, you know, my dark moments was that if I could just show people what Jeff Hinton was like, mm-hmm. um, among other people, but Jeff Hinton in particular, if I could just get him onto the page, then the book could work. Yeah. So I guess you just, you, you write, so someone might think that, oh, well, if you're a reporter on this subject, writing the book should be, you know, easy to, to add, you know, fill in your day. But it sounds like was the book written on your off time, so to speak? Exactly. A lot of early mornings and, and late nights and, um, you know, over two or three years. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, but it's done now. Yeah. Are you right? Do you have a current writing project? Well, I'm focusing on my work at the Times at the moment, but um, but I hope to write another book. We'll see. There are a couple of ideas that I'm batting around with my publisher, among others. Uh, I, I did enjoy it. I would like to do it again. So where can people follow you online? Do you have social media or a website? I'm at, uh, at Cade Metz on Twitter. You can also follow me you know, uh, on my page at the New York Times, mm-hmm. where I publish regularly. And then the book is available um, from all booksellers, uh, Amazon, as well as independent booksellers. Uh, there's a hardcover, there's a digital version, there's an audio version, mm-hmm. uh, which I quite like. Uh, all of the above. And I'll spell, so it's at C-A-D-E-M-E-T-Z. That's right. On, on Twitter, you said, right? That's right. Okay, okay. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? No, I enjoyed chatting it's always fun to talk about this technology and about these people as well oh yeah it's a, it's amazing stuff that thanks for taking the time glad to do it thank you thank you for listening to technology and space if you want more interviews with space scientists space historians and technology experts or daily space and science book suggestions check out technologyandspace.com and follow me at spacewalks money talks on facebook instagram and youtube Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and this podcast, Technology and Space. If you want interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast Full Contact Nerd Interviews. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.